Life with Dr. William Baker. I'm your host, Dr. William Baker. And on today's podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the book of Revelation. Um, John, who is the supposed author, and some of the symbolism contained in the book of Revelation um, in the Bible. Now, Revelation has always... Um, I want to find the right word here, uh, interest me due to a lot of the symbolism in it. You know, you've got seals, you've got horsemen, you've got, you know, the world is coming apart. Um, it, it foreshadows, you know, it's, the, it's a future and you have to kind of interpret that. So, you know, I think today's podcast is going to be really interesting and uh, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. So uh, let's go ahead and uh, get started. Now, Revelation is a powerful book of the New Testament that more should read. It's believed fewer read the book of Revelation due to the debate around authorship, content, and symbolism used. We're going to attempt to place authorship of the book of Revelation and also discuss some of the symbolism contained therein to include the seals, trumpets, and bowls. Now, perhaps the most controversial book of the Bible is Revelation. Along with the controversy contained within Revelation is the controversy around the authorship. You know, the authorship being assigned to John. Even today, there's a great debate as to which John wrote Revelation and when. There's many different Johns in the Bible and in history. John was a common name. We'll start with the John the church claims is the author of Revelation. Now, according to the church, Revelation and the fourth gospel were both written by the same person who was called John, the apostle. So this one we're talking about John the apostle. The church has existed in numerous forms of existence for thousands of years. Spiritual leaders have the trust and faith of many followers. If the church declares that John the Apostle wrote Revelation and the fourth gospel, most, if not all, followers will not question what they've been told and accept it as true. They'll just accept what the church says is true. Now, early church leaders agreed that John wrote Revelation, the early church being the first couple of generations after the time of Jesus and his apostles. Now, there are those who disagree with the church and the assignment of authorship to John. One such disagreement comes from the writings of Papias. Papias was writing in reference to texts that John had supposedly written, but noted differences in between writings of John, alluding to the possibility of a second John. Now, in Papias's writings, he discussed or excuse me, distinguished between John the Apostle and John the Presbyter. Some believe this distinction between John the Apostle and John the Presbyter allows the possibility that a different John may have written Revelation. There's no further evidence to prove of a second John. John the Presbyter, who would have been the second John, who may have written Revelation. Now, there are also other names associated with John. John the Apostle was also referred to as John of Zebedee, Zebedee being John's father, 
as was common amongst people of that time, to provide familial association and name references. Another familiar name associated with John was John of Patmos. This association was due to John writing the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. There's a little more history to Patmos than just John writing Revelation on the island of Patmos. Now, if John was truly an apostle, would he limit his journeys to a tiny island and confine himself there while he wrote Revelation? Patmos was actually a penal colony. We know from historical records in the church that John was banished to Patmos by the emperor. This was often the case for those that caused trouble for the Roman Empire. Just as controversy surrounds the writings of Revelation, there are those who say no definitive proof exists as to why John, <coughs> John went to Patmos. So they're saying that there is proof that John was banished to Patmos by the emperor, but there's no proof, uh, you know, why he was in Patmos, why he went there. So, you know, got a little bit of controversy there, too. It is suggested that John merely recorded his visions while on Patmos and actually compiled Revelation at a later date. One such theory posed mentioned that John was in a hurry to write down the visions he was having and later used a secretary to actually compile his work. It's believed that John was unschooled, so the use of a secretary does not make, or excuse me, does make logical sense and is suggested by some. You know, you can't write, so you got to hire somebody. Another suggestion is that John did not write Revelation at all, but rather a pupil or someone else from his school wrote the work. Fiorenza performed a comparison between Revelation and the fourth gospel and has found numerous discrepancies in common word usage. Now, Fiorenza believes these discrepancies can be attributed to someone else writing for John or in a style that mirrors his works or his teachings. Could have been one of his students who, you know, if he taught his style to his students, they would be kind of familiar. It'd still be a little different, but, you know, possible. While John was unschooled, he was an apostle, so he would have a place of importance in one of the schools where he would have students and followers. The students who followed John would adapt his style similar but unique to their own person. Similar in the sense that students adapt and adopt traits learned from their teachers. This difference adds plausibility to Fiorenza's theory that John did not write Revelation. Now, you, unless artifacts are discovered that would shed a new light on Revelation's authorship, we will proceed under the assumption that John the Apostle, otherwise known as John of Zebedee, wrote this great work. Now, proceeding on the basis that John or the Apostle wrote the work of Revelation brings to light another significant debate of modern scholars. When was Revelation written? The timing of when Revelation was written is important, in part due to the content of Revelation and the impact of events occurring in society, as they would have a direct influence on John. Understanding when Revelation was written will allow us to properly contextualize the context of work. One item that will help us determine the date of when Revelation was written comes from biblical text. The book of Luke tells us that the Gentiles will trample the temple. 
Revelations 11 references this, and we know as a matter of clear historical archaeological record that the temple was destroyed in August-September time frame of A.D. 70. If John had written about the coming destruction of the temple, then the temple was not yet destroyed when the work was wrote. So we can date the work prior to A.D. 70. Now, there would be no need to write about pending prophecies that have already occurred. The importance of this date also has to deal with the emperor of Rome, specifically who was the emperor of Rome at that time. This allows us to better understand the political happenings that would have direct impact and influence on John. We know there are two emperors who ruled during the lifetime of John. Nero, who reigned from AD 54 to 68, and Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96. Now, based on known facts, namely that the temple was destroyed in AD 70, we also have to assume that Domitian would not have yet been emperor, and thus by default know that Nero was emperor during the time that John wrote Revelation. But is this indeed the case, even though the dates seem to align? Now, Fiorenza points out that Strobel, these are all scholars, uh, makes the case that Domitian was emperor during the time of writing, noting that Nero committed suicide, and traditionally the church has always stated that Domitian was the sixth emperor, and emperor when Revelations was written. So why would the church make such a claim when the date seemed to acknowledge when it was written? Could the traditional church have been wrong? Now, the issue of the date of when Revelation was written is important when looking at the traditional church in the sense of when Christianity started. Some place the writing of Revelation at the beginning of Christian history. As we know from numerous other historical texts, some are well, written well after the subject of writing takes place. It's possible the church could have made the decision to acknowledge Domitian tens or even hundreds of years after Domitian's time. If it's true that Christianity started when Judaism ended, the date would be close to the temple destruction in A.D. 70. Domitian and Nero both had times during their reign in which they viciously persecuted Christians, and John would have been alive for both of these. <coughs> Excuse me. My throat is kind of dry. So being witness to the cruel actions of Rome, the passion of personal feelings would be transferred to the writing of Revelation. Being somewhat of importance in the Christian movement, John would have infuriated the emperor and Roman citizens with talk of another king. Just think about that. John seeing all this stuff happen. And, you know, is, is his writing biased just what it is? Or is, is it influencing how he's writing it, what's being written? You know, a lot of people take the, the Bible at face value, but we've got to look at things like this, you know, when that person's writing, you know, what's the life like? What's the political culture like, the spiritual culture? This is something Romans would definitely address is more likely why John was on Patmos. It is believed his writings also allude to Nero as emperor, as indicated in John's writing by the term beast and a numerical reference to the beast. 
John tells us the numerical value of the beast is 666. This happens to be the numerical uh, numeric value of Nero Caesar's name when spelled in Hebrew characters. Does this definitively tell us who was emperor at the time of writing? No. I believe this does edge the scale towards Nero. Else why would John put a reference in Revelations to 666 when there's no known association with Domitian? Perhaps future discoveries will shed a light on some of these mysteries. But spelled out in the Hebrew text, you know, it, it 666. So let's... uh. You have to think about that a little bit. Another area of intrigue regarding Revelation is the symbology used in Revelation. In John's work, we have an array of symbology used to describe the vision John witnessed. In the context of Revelation, this is a powerful tool, as Revelation was meant to be read aloud. You know, Revelation and, and every all these were meant to be read. They were meant to be spoken. As one is reading Revelation aloud, it's the intended audience is, is creating these images in their mind of the message being communicated. This imaging allows for a strong absorption of the message being communicated. You know, they're visioning it in, in their minds. You know, first let us discuss the stars and the lampstands. It's in Revelations. The stars are reported to represent the seven spirits of God, whom the seven letters in Revelation address in each of the letters to the seven churches. The symbol of the star itself represents a heavenly image due to the location of the stars. We can look up toward the heaven and see the little lights glimmering in the heaven so far away beyond our sky. These are otherworldly. The stars also represent the seven spirits of God. The spirits are associated with the seven churches, and in some manner seem to bring a living aspect to the church. The church has a spirit similar to the way humans have the Holy Spirit, illuminating them from within. So in a sense, we have living churches, which are really the people. Stars can also provide light, comfort, direction, as it was with the three wise men. The lampstands represent the seven churches, to whom the seven letters were written and addressed. When you think of a lampstand, you think of an object that provides stability for illumination. The lampstands themselves do not provide illumination, but host the means to provide light. The lampstand can exist in a state of light or darkness, just as the church can exist in a state of godliness or evil. These are choices that God gives us with consequences for our choice. The church can choose to be a beacon and spread the name and teachings of Christ, or the church can go astray in which salvation for its followers will not be found. You know, now we're going to discuss the four living creatures uh, in the throne room of heaven. The four creatures have six wings and numerous eyes with different faces. The faces being those of an ox, an eagle, a lion, and a human. We have four creatures. These are not human, but something more than human, and not earthly, since they are creatures for which John has no worldly name. If they are not worldly, they must be otherworldly or heavenly in nature. While the scope of reading does not allow for more direct investigation of meanings, 
you know, we're going to make some educated assumptions about the imagery. Certainly the numerous eyes can allude to the heavenly creature's ability to see everything under the heaven, which is pretty much everything. There's not enough information to elaborate or make an educated guess in regards to the creatures having six wings. These creatures will announce the riders who are summoned as the seals are opened and provide the bowls to the angels. Now, the seven seals discussed in Revelations focus on Israel and act as a divorce decree. One thing I would like to mention at this point is the significance of seven. Seven is the number of completion and is as such is associated with God and only the lamb can open the seven seals of final judgment. When we talk of divorce of this nature, there is no one other than God himself who's qualified to arbitrate such a proceeding. Why a divorce? The Bible provides much written evidence of Israel straying away from their covenant with God. Israel has, in a sense, broken their vows of the marriage to God. The Messiah is referred to as a bridegroom who is removed. If there is a wedding ceremony and the bride or groom were to leave midway, everyone in attendance would be in shock. This serves as an early pointer to Christ's rejection and death at the hands of the Jews. So we have Christ being rejected by the Jewish people and ultimately crucified due to their, due to their persi persistence to Roman authority that he be crucified, which we know was a death befitting at the time, at that time, a slave or worse. So, you know, die when Christ died, it was a slave's death or worse. So that that's not very, you know, nice. Uh, that's not very good. And But that's what the Jewish people wanted for him. All this was done in the interest of protecting the Sanhedrin's authority and power. And remember, the Sanhedrin is the religious authority of the Jewish people. The Jewish people are then left with the seven-sealed scroll in which the lamb is executing. Only the lamb can break these seals. Now, seals are traditionally a waxy substance poured on the edge of a container that's pressed with an impression to verify confidentiality of the containers. A relative fragile and thin thing, but in this instance, no one but the lamb could open it. Even though it's fragile, there's only one person who can break that and open it. A heavenly seal only the Most High can open due to the judgment contained within. Just as the seven-sealed scroll was a divorce decree of sorts, it points to a larger event. A divorce happens through a courthouse, and the seals are but part in a series of judgments on Israel. Now, the judgment of the seal opening of openings affect a quarter of the earth. Those of the trumpets affect a third, but those of the bowls are unlimited. So we've got the, the judgments of the seal opening, the trumpets, and the bowls. Trumpets affected a third of the earth. What are the trumpets' purpose? The trumpets were to announce impending judgment against the world. The trumpets represent plagues that God will set upon man. Let's remember that Revelation is about prophecy, things to come. The first trumpet will call a plague that will cause one-third of the vegetation to be burned up. This plague will only affect the earth, 
when you think about this, one might think that God is mad at man. But on a second thought, he might not be. The second trumpet calls forth a plague in the shape of a burning mountain that will be thrown into the sea. It will destroy one-third of the sea's creatures and one-third of the boats that are there. The plague will only affect the seas, only impact the seas. Again, God will destroy the beautiful creatures he created and the machines of man. The third trumpet will call forth a plague that will cause a star to fall and impact fresh water of the earth. Now, without a doubt, one thing man needs to live is fresh water. If God's willing to destroy fresh water, <coughs> excuse me, you know, if God's willing to destroy that fresh water, does God want man to die? The question will be addressed after we talk about the seventh trumpet. When the fourth trumpet sounds, the sun, moon, and stars will all be diminished by one-third. One-third of the world's light, gone in an instant. Some say this is the beginning of the tribulation. The fifth trumpet will call forth locusts from the bottomless pit, but the locusts were not allowed to act as was in their nature, eating vegetation. The locusts, although some would say demons, since they came from the bottomless pit, are to torment those who do not have the Lord's seal on their forehead. The sixth trumpet will bring about the death of one-third of mankind. The goal is not to destroy mankind, but rather cause those who would be redeemed to seek God and repentance. I think any potentially righteous person who will witness such carnage and destruction would ask for divine forgiveness, you know, and, and assistance if they believed in God. Those who do not seek repentance are truly lost. This brings us to the last trumpet. Now, the seventh trumpet sounding from the seven thunders. God, uh, John was instructed to not write down, you know, what the seven thunders spoke. He was given that vision, but he was told he couldn't write that down. He could see it, but he couldn't write it down. This will be the church's last chance to seek redemption and repentance. If you're lucky enough to survive, survival not being a good thing if you're truly saved, unless you are to be a witness. You know, it means, means you need to change your ways and repent. This will be the last opportunity to seek redemption before Satan is allowed to rule. All the plagues that will be introduced by the trumpets are designed by God to bring humankind to seek him or return to him. God's giving mankind every chance to seek redemption. Being God, God could give everyone salvation, but that is not the outcome that God is looking to produce. Man needs to make the choice to seek God and repent of his own free will. The symbolism of the trumpet is a loud instrument that can be heard from very far distance designed to draw your attention. When you hear the horn blow, you're going to look and see where it's coming from. Now, bowls are another important symbol in Revelation. The bowls focus on the land of Israel. The bowls come from one of the four creatures mentioned earlier who gives the bowls to angels to pour on the earth. The bowls contain God's wrath. That's not a good thing. The first bowl. The first bowl will cause boils on the skin of men who worship the beast and or those who have the mark of the beast upon them. 
If you imagine this, you can actually see this is a painful condition. The boil will be pressurized or even perhaps leaking, and the boil itself and the area around it will be red, swollen, and very painful. The second bowl will be poured out upon the sea. The sea will become dead and putrid. All living things in the sea will die, and the water will become unpalatable. Men will no longer be able to rely on the sea for food or for water that provides life. That's not good. Not good at all. The third bowl, the third bowl will be poured out unto the rivers and springs of water, and they become blood. The rivers and springs become blood, becoming blood, do not necessarily mean that everything in them will die or that they're unpalatable, you know, such as the second bowl. This could indicate the Roman Empire will pay a dear price for pain and suffering they bestowed upon the children of Israel. Because it was written when Romans were in charge and Israel was subjugated. Since we know this is to be a prophecy in the Roman Empire long gone, this would reference a political power at the time of this occurrence. The fourth bowl will be poured out unto the sun, allowing the sun to burn man. Previously, God bridled the sun so man wouldn't burn up in its glow. When the fourth bowl is poured out, the sun's no longer restrained, and man will suffer under it. This will make life difficult for all of those who survive, almost a hell on earth. The earth doesn't have to burn, but if he unbridles the sun, we're going to be burning on it. The fifth bowl will be poured onto the throne of the beast. The beast's kingdom will enter into darkness, and the beast's subjects will suffer. They will suffer the darkness, burning flesh, boils, lack of food and water, and more. Suffering will be there as they curse and sin against God. They will not take salvation, even if they know what to do to obtain it as they continue to sin. The sixth bowl dried up the rivers, Euphrates, so that the great armies may come and die at Armageddon. Historically, great kingdoms use water as a means to provide shelter of sorts from their enemies. You know, God's allowing his enemies to come by providing a, a path. God's speeding up judgment against them. This shows that God is not afraid of the armies of the beast as he wishes to engage them in battle so that their evil may be cleansed. He's going to clear them out. You know, God's not going to lose. It's already won. We know that. They know that but think they can change that which is foolish. You're not going to win against God. And with the seventh bowl, it is done. The seventh bowl is wrath that will fall upon the city of Jerusalem, which John called the great city. With the seventh bowl, all the enemies of God will utterly be destroyed. All the plagues and wrath will come to an end as the judgment of God will be carried out and the divorce between the Messiah and Israel will be complete. Now will be the time of New Jerusalem. Is there importance in a bowl? Perhaps. A bowl is a simple container, but significance at the time of the writing of Revelation. Other than larger pots, a bowl would be something that could be controlled easily by hand. We may think that these would contain the wrath of God, and as such, a bowl could not contain such a power. 
But we must remember the Lord saw fit to use the bowl, and we cannot pretend to understand the Lord and his power in our limited manner. You know, who are we to say we understand what God wanted to do, why he did it the way he did it? You know, that's really taking and contextualizing God in, in almost a scientific manner. You know, we have to understand it. Let's put it in a box. No, we're the ones in the box. God is very much, you know, more than us. So we've discussed the authorship of Revelation, the Johns, coming to the conclusion that John the Apostle did write Revelation during the time of Nero. While there may be arguments supporting Domitian, unless more artifacts are recovered to support such a theory, we're going to continue on the basis of Nero being emperor. We've also discussed numerous symbols found in the book of Revelation, such as the four creatures, stars, lampstands, trumpets, and bowls. The plagues and wrath specified in Revelation are prophecy designed to help us recognize end times and bring the church back to God while there's still time left. And that's important while there's time left, because at some point, time will run out for man. God will erase his enemies clean from the earth, as we have discussed above, you know, and and. Before they're destroyed, they're going to suffer. We've heard about the boils. We've heard about the burning. We've heard about, you know, where they're going to get food, water. They're going to suffer an unimaginable fate. I pray they find their wit, repent, and accept God as their Savior. Now, that's some heavy stuff for this week's podcast. You know, um, when you read Revelation, think about that, you know. I know some, there's always a thing, you know, there's a lot of belief that people don't read Revelation. I find Revelation actually really interesting. I don't know why I'm drawn to it, but I do. And, you know, if I just think about that aspect of me and and how I'm drawn to it, then, you know, maybe a lot of people would, you know, like, like to read Revelation. I don't know. I'm not taking a survey. I'm not doing research on that. So, you know, I'm just going to say yes, based on my information, data from one person, data source, me, you know, maybe a lot of people are reading it. But think about that. All that stuff, the beast, the eyes, the stars, the light, the lampstands, the lamps, the bowls, the trumpets, you know, passing it off to the angels, pouring it on the earth. And then what happens? You know, how, you know, was it written? It was written, you know, John Pat, you know, John on the island of Patmos, which is a penal colony during the time of Nero. Well, why was John there? Was he a prisoner? Was he, did he do something wrong? Well, he wouldn't be vacationing there. So more than likely he was, um, you know, there for, for some reason um, in custody, probably for doing something and the Roman government didn't like it and put him there. So I will leave you that with that this week. And uh, once again, I say go in God. Um, God bless. You know, don't stress. Uh, find my page on Podbean, Podbean and uh, send me a message um, if you want. I will try to get that page updated with my email address and I will respond um, accordingly. 
So thank you for listening this week. Uh, another week of Christian life with Dr. William Baker. God bless.